0: Hello, and welcome to Talking Tech, a podcast that considers the regulatory implications of new technologies for the legal services sector. I'm David Fowlis, a regulatory policy manager at the Legal Services Board, and today I'm joined by Dr. Anna Donovan of University College London's Faculty of Laws. We'll be talking about the potential benefits and challenges that the use of distributed ledger technologies, such as blockchain, present for consumers and providers of legal services, and how legal services regulators might respond to these challenges. Anna, welcome to the podcast, and if you'd like to say a few words about your background and your work on legal services technology.
1: Thanks, David, and first, thank you very much for inviting me into this program of work. So I'm the inaugural Vice Dean of Innovation here at the UCL Faculty of Laws, where I'm also a member of the UCL Center for Blockchain Technologies. Outside of UCL, I'm a member of the UK Law Tech Delivery Panel, where I chair the Education Task Force. And prior to my move into academia, I was a corporate solicitor here in London, but it was really my move into the academy that that generated my interest in in blockchain technologies and its implications for the sector.
0: Okay, great. I think first off um, for our audience, it'd be useful just to have a brief discussion of what distributed ledger technologies and blockchain are and aren't.
1: Yeah, it is a great first question and actually one that is not necessarily by any means settled and we go into the detail of the technology in the corresponding paper but in brief DLT or blockchain technology is a form of ledger something that we're we're familiar with across all sectors from banking and finance to registries but it has some very special characteristics which is why this technology has captured the attention of the market it's an append only ledger we can only add to it we can't take away from it it's time stamped so it's a reliable record of account Mm -hmm. and it's distributed across the computers or nodes in the network so there's no single central authority which is a a key feature of, of the ledger itself. It also adopts a consensus mechanism which is very particular to the function of the ledger and this consensus mechanism operates in a way to validate the data on the ledger that makes it very difficult to tamper with the ledger and so these are the characteristics that we see coalesce for people to say well this type of ledger is a new kind of form and record of account, it's reliable and really we talk about it being secure by design. The technology itself. itself, builds in protections to to the records that it holds.
0: Okay. And just to understand the difference between specifically blockchain and a deal, a general type mm-hmm. of distributed ledger?
1: Yes, because the two terms are are often conflated. So blockchains are all DLTs, but not all DLTs are blockchains. So distributed ledger technology is our, our general technology of a distributed ledger of account. Where blockchain differs slightly, and it's by far, at, at this stage, really one of the most common forms of DLT, is how the data is added to that ledger. It's right. added in these blocks, which are added every 10 minutes, and so really the difference is how we collate and add and link the data okay. on the chain. And blockchain, just for further clarification, is is the DLT that came to the fore really with the Bitcoin cryptocurrency. Yeah. So that's why it's the term that, that's quite familiar. Okay.
0: What are the benefits of using a distributed ledger technology? Let's just say blockchain from now on for yeah, shorthand. Yeah. What's, what are the benefits of that? as opposed to using a traditional method of of exchanging payment for a good or a service.
1: Yeah, before I get into that, it's probably helpful actually to answer the question to distinguish between permissionless and permissioned ledgers, if you wish. Um, So a permissionless ledger is the... Open type of ledger that we associate with Bitcoin. So anyone can join, anyone can verify. Mm-hmm. And the permissioned ledger, as the name suggests, so is more of a closed ledger. You need to be approved to actually right. join and transact on, on the database. And, and I mentioned that in response to your question because that distinction uh, goes to answer some of the benefits okay. or, or otherwise. So the benefits broadly of, of using um, DLT is it's fast, it's efficient. It's transparent, it's a reliable record of account due to this so-called immutability of the ledger that is quite difficult to tamper with. Also... Ledgers don't just store digital cash, and we mentioned Bitcoin um, earlier, they can be used to store any type of digital information, so they can be used to innovate in the way we interact with each other. You will probably come on to a bit later, smart contracts, for example, so one benefit of a ledger is we can automate these contractual relationships. Really, though, at that core, one of the primary benefits that, that DLT introduced to the world is this notion of trust. Okay. The technology itself manufactures trust between us. We don't have a centralized third party. We're right. not trusting a bank or other um, gatekeeper. What we're doing is we're trusting the maths, the computational okay. trust in the system. And so that opens up a wealth of opportunity in terms of innovating relationships and creating reliable ledgers, trustworthy ledgers. That's also the reason I thought I'd answer this question by distinguishing between the permissioned and the permissionless ledger, because that trust is infinitely more important in a permissionless environment where we don't know each other, we don't have trust. In a permissioned environment... There's trust that exists between us off the chain because mm-hmm. we know each other. Yeah. We've probably signed an onboarding agreement, and so the distinction between using a ledger and a, and a regular database in a permissioned environment might might be less clear cut. Okay.
0: So, just to sum it up a bit, we've mm-hmm. got we can have faster transactions, mm-hmm. we can have more efficient transactions, um, we can there's a degree of transparency. Uh, that's maybe greater and there, there's this idea of that you particularly on a permissioned ledger It's a permissionless ledger mm. by the very nature of it. It manufactures trust as you put it um, The permission ledger obviously you've already been vetted presumably before you get to sign on to it and then go on to it mm. Just about the transparency. I just mm. wanted to sort of clarify a bit there What is what, what would be more how would it be more transparent if I was say transferring a, an asset and using blockchain than if I was using another more traditional mechanism.
1: Certainly, well there's a couple of ways we could look at that transparency question actually, so on let's say again a permissionless ledger the ledger is open to everyone, it's public everyone can see that ledger, so we can see the transactions that are occurring, whereas on a traditional database that might not always be the case, it could be a closed system but we also have the transparency of the transaction history if you like, we can go back and we can witness the transfer of an asset from A to B, Mm. B to C, which again and certainly, it's possible in, in some um, off-chain databases, right. but again, there might be greater permissions around that. So there's a limited group of people who, who can see that.
0: Okay. So, so for what sort of asset would that be useful? Just just um, if we wanted to think about the things that lawyers perhaps usually deal with, whether it's property, real property, or um, other kinds of assets, you know, stocks, shares, I guess these kind yeah. of things. Where would where would that be sort of employed?
1: Yeah, so we're seeing it a lot in um, supply chain management as well as the examples okay. you give. So we certainly have a land registry um, example that, that we can come on to in this mm. jurisdiction, um, which is going to be very groundbreaking, actually. Um, but supply chain management is, is the key area. Mesk, for example, have their TradeLens um, platform that they use. We actually saw one of the early applications of blockchain technology with a company called Everledger, which was um, okay. diamond tracking. And so where that transparency is valuable with supply chains is we can track the transfer of the goods throughout the whole life cycle and and transaction cycle. So where the shipping example was particularly useful is it not only helps verify the ownership of the asset but coming back to your earlier comment around speed and efficiency mm-hmm. it dramatically reduced the the time and the risk involved in terms of um, transportation documents bills of lading so on and okay. so forth which can be digitized put on the ledger all parties in the chain can access that it's tamper proof relatively okay. um, so a whole suite of, of um, domains where this is valuable. IP management being um, another key example which I'm sure a lot of legal services providers are involved with.
0: Just one thing that that I had at the start of this thought was, was this really a solution in search of a problem? Mm-hmm. Do we have any idea of what the quantifiable say benefits of this will be in terms of how much cost it might save in particular transactions? Do, do we have any examples where some of this has been put in place and then we, the people using it are seeing that it's greatly reducing their costs or it's making, actually, actually achieving these efficiencies.
1: Yeah. As I said, I think that is to a degree a fair criticism. but I also think it's part of the innovation cycle. We need to engage with these types yeah. of activities to understand where the real value lies, to understand where the opportunities are, mm-hmm. when some of the problems are in. Ben Horowitz, who's very active in this space, I think, had a really nice example of of talking about that, saying, well, whenever you have a new disruptive technology, it never performs as well as the incumbents, but it has these capabilities and characteristics that they don't have. And he used the example of the smartphone. When we first experienced smartphones, people said, well, you know, it's just a personal computer with a too small screen. Um, But it had GPS tracking, it had camera phones, so we could have innovation like Lyft, like Uber and And so over time, it allows that innovation. And I think that's where we are to a large degree with with DLT. Yes, it still has its flaws, particularly around scalability and and the time of of certain transactions. But it has this trust primitive, which Mm -hmm. really is going to facilitate innovation. In terms of quantifying the cost, it's difficult to say, because it is such a nascent technology, estimates that are provided are significant, so tens and tens of millions per Mm -hmm. year, even in, for example, automobile insurance. So right. the view is once we reach scale, which mm-hmm. could be some way away, the, the cost savings are going to be significant um, because of the reduction in the time of transaction costs, because of it is envisaged a reduction in disputes between parties mm-hmm. and for a whole host of innovations, which we, we can't envisage now. So it is expected to be significant and therefore worth the investment, but it, it's difficult to quantify with with accuracy at this okay. stage.
0: Been just thinking about, you talked about contracts and mm. disputes between people. Now that's, and that's obviously one of the bread and butter things mm-hmm. of legal services. So perhaps if we now move on to look at how these the technology might be specifically used in legal services. Yeah. And one of the things we've already talked about, mentioned, is is smart contracts yes. and ways of trying, and if you, perhaps if you'd just like to explain a little bit about what it, smart contracts are yes. um, what and again perhaps what they're not and some of the terminology there can be a bit confusing and then how that and can sort of work with how that works.
1: Yes, and I think what smart contracts are not is a particularly important point for certainly legal services consumers. So smart contracts were the brainchild, if you will, of Nick Szabo, who was a lawyer and a computer scientist and who wrote about this back in mm. 96, 97. Uh, but it wasn't until the Bitcoin white paper later in 2008 that we had the blockchain technology right. to make them happen. Because what Nick Jarbo did was he brought together his computer science knowledge and his legal knowledge. He was a, a polymath in that respect to say, how can we automate The contracting process? How can we make contracting between the parties more efficient? And he was very keen to reduce not only the financial transaction costs Mm -hmm. and frictions in the system, but also what he described as the mental transaction costs of anticipating a breach of contract drafting to mitigate the breach of contract, mm-hmm. but then it's inevitably happening at some point and then having and also to... also having
0: to check that there's been a breach of contract and those kind of things as well. E-
1: exactly. Yeah. So we've got the monitoring costs, and he wanted to see how can we use technology to reduce that. So in brief, smart contracts are computer code or protocols that automate the performance. So right. once a certain condition has been met, if X, then Y, then performance will be automated. So an example... Real life example, you, AXA has its physi um, insurance delayed flight um, right. smart contract. So you take out the insurance, the code is uploaded. If the flight is delayed by the set period of time, mm-hmm. you automatically receive the payment. Right. It is trite to say, so I shall say it nonetheless, they are neither smart nor contracts, um, Mm -hmm. although they are certainly capable of being both. The smart element likely to engage considerations around artificial intelligence. But for this conversation, I think where the risk can come for consumers is you hear the phrase smart contract, automated performance, and you think I have a legally binding contract for which I have no right of remedy. Once it's performed, that's the end of the relationship relationship and certainly you see people in the uh, non-legal space talking about smart contracts meaning there will never be a need for litigation there will never be a dispute because performance will be automated whereas legal services providers have hundreds of years of common law history to know that well we can enter into leases to hire music halls and they can burn down before completion and so what do we do in those scenarios so what they are not, depending on how they're structured, okay. is legally binding contracts.
0: Right. So we just talked a little bit about... Flight insurance example. Mm. There are there other other examples where we're seeing it. I mean, perhaps in shipping. I think it's one of the areas you mentioned those kind of areas.
1: Yeah, the shipping, um, file storage, leases of properties. Mm-hmm. So one potential um, avenue for consumers, and one of the benefits we perhaps didn't touch on earlier around DLT is greater agency and autonomy over the use of your assets. So. For example, a property rental business. Do Mm -hmm. I want to have a digital lock to my property? And I enter into a short-term lease with a third party who I don't know. They... Pay me the requisite amount of money. The they automatically get sent the the number lock to access right. the property, um, and we don't need to know each other. We don't need to meet. If they don't pay me, then they don't get the the number lock. Um, you see for
0: Airbnb, can't you? E-
1: exactly, that sort of thing, yeah. exactly. And so again, we're using a decentralized system to further decentralize an existing okay. off-chain system. So ISDA do a lot of work in this space, so derivatives trading. Um, there's a huge, huge wealth of opportunity in financial services. Where smart contracts are most useful is where we have that conditional logic. Okay. If A, then B. What we're currently not able to do, mm-hmm. although this will depend on development of language is where provisions have discretion. So yes. it would be nigh on impossible at this stage practically to say, well, I'm going to put into a smart contract an obligation to use my reasonable endeavours. Right. What does reasonable mean? What's a material adverse change? Yeah. And so this is where we come onto a distinction that we can quite often see around smart contract code, smart new legal contract. To what extent is a smart contract just code that automates performance of an off-chain traditional Mm -hmm. legal contract or to what extent does the code itself form legally binding obligations does it satisfy tests of offer acceptance consideration intent? What we're seeing at this stage, or where we're rapidly moving from, that is this hybrid approach. So the parties enter into an off-chain contract, certain provisions of which are um, capable of performance um, by by a smart contract. But there is a lot of activity moving towards a more complete on-chain okay. smart contract so, remedy. So,
0: so what we've got there is we've got a, new, a way of doing if, like you said, if A then B. Mm. Um, and but what we where somebody says, well, does that if you had to think about whether a contract was satisfied, whether performance has been completed, the smart contract's not really there yet because that's still gonna require a human being to think about that, whether Mm. something's been achieved or achieved to a sufficient degree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So actually, it was quite useful because we talked a little bit about assets there Mm. um, and property and things. So if we just wanna maybe quickly speak about ownership and registration Mm. and how that can be used in the land registries work in this area.
1: And ownership and registration, I think, is a really important case study for DLT because it does pick up on those two aspects. Ownership, we've got this reliable time-stamped record of account, Mm -hmm. and registration, which picks up the automation aspect of the technology. So we can have a smart contract that automatically updates the register in a reliable way, in a time-stamped way. And so the land registry example you refer to um, happened earlier this year, so April 2019 the land registry has been running its digital streets program for yeah. some while now looking at the use of technology and earlier this year it ran parallel to the um the underlying transaction um a digital transfer okay. of of um, a freehold property right. and the transfer they used quarter so that is a a private um, but publicly viewable um okay. ledger and they worked importantly because i think this is something we'll we'll probably come on to later as well to enhance the user experience around that so they developed a mobile prototype so that the buyers and sellers could use their mobile phones Mm -hmm. to comply with identification requirements signing transfer documents and i think the estimate was it took 10 minutes to run from having agreed the documentation to the transfer taking place and updating the registry so we can see in that example how we've got speed, efficiency, trust in the system, yep. legitimacy of the system, I think is something will come on to you. The the buyer and the seller didn't have to go into their solicitor's office with certified copies of identification that right. they'd provided three weeks earlier for another purpose to another third party. Mm-hmm. The ledger is automatically updated. Right. So we're removing user error, we're removing you oh, can we understand the the number on this document? Was there a slip? Was there a mishap? Um, And so it's very exciting. It should be clear. The land registry is very clear. We're not about to shift the land registry onto DLT. But what it does do is show the art of the possible. Mm -hmm. Um, It shows the support, certainly in this this jurisdiction, for using this technology in a way that delivers consumer benefit. And so it does lay the foundation to think about scale now on, on this approach.
0: That's helpful, thanks. And again, so just very briefly mm-hmm. talking about identity, and I think again, we talked about it a little bit there yeah. because you were mentioning how people could upload documents to make sure that they were, uh, they were the right person who was selling the property and that kind of thing and mm-hmm. having to provide copies without having to provide multiple copies of multiple things. Mm-hmm. But but again, uh, perhaps mm-hmm. how using it to prove identity or to um, survey that would we all end up with a digital ID kind yes. of thing?
1: Identity is a really important and exciting area for the technology for a couple of reasons. Um, One for the one we've just explained. So identity verification. How do I prove my identity? How do I store my identity documents so that they are verified by third parties, government, so on and so forth? But then I can provide a a hash or a certificate to the Mm -hmm. service provider confirming I am who I am. So you've got the identity. verification verification piece which is very important to unlock the potential of the ledger in terms of contracts smart contracts being legally binding Mm -hmm. in terms of enforcement concerns but you have the other aspect of identification which is self-sovereign identity so how do i control my identity more at the moment if i want to i don't know prove my age to buy alcohol i might end up showing the um Retailer, a document which not only proves my age but shows my dress, my gender, so on and so forth. Whereas this technology is is offering potential to say, well, actually, if all you need to know is how old I am, I only need to show you that bit of my identity. I don't need to show you everything else. You don't even
0: have to know your name.
1: Exactly. So it's there are two really important things around identity, and that's why there's a lot of work on both the verification and the self sovereign piece going on um, across the board and. It's, it has a huge unlocking potential. So, I think that's going to be a really interesting tipping point for adoption more generally. And obviously, AML, KYC is critical for, for legal services. So, anti,
0: anti, anti money laundering. Yes. Kind of yeah. Good, yeah. So, just, just wanting to bring it back onto legal services mm-hmm. and how the legal system service providers, consumers can benefit, will benefit from, say, the block, use of blockchain in what they do. And then maybe we'll just talk a bit about how the impact will be on regulation. So just starting off with how it sort of help consumers? Will it be easier for them to access legal services? Will it make it cheaper for them?
1: Yeah, both of those things. So blockchain should make it much easier um, once we get to adoption levels for consumers to access legal services or Mm -hmm legal transactions so for example you have talked about smart contract and we see LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer for example they are now both offering or getting towards offering smart contract technology directly to their consumers. We can see there's a a development um, I think Legal Bootstrap does it for developing um, smart contract dispute resolution um, services so those types of activities will mean that consumers. Can have their legal needs met in a more direct. Quicker, arguably cheaper manner. We talked about the um, registration and record keeping function mm-hmm. of DLT, and we talked about the land registry and how quick that process was. So, yeah. again, consumers have that speed and transparency as well. So, should be um, a, a significant benefit to consumers once some of the um, challenges on, on adoption have been realized. Okay,
0: and from the legal services provider mm. point of view, is it, is it that those advantages are essentially reflected in what, you know, is there a sort of flip side of that for the legal services provider? Are they going to make it be able to be cheaper, provide, provide a service that's more profitable to them or more straightforward or do more work?
1: In due course. So at the moment, what we're seeing the impact is for legal services providers mm-hmm. is mainly the need to advise clients operating in this space. Right. We're not seeing, and I think the LSB's own report showed this, we're not seeing a huge uptake in the deployment of Mm. DLT by legal services providers, certainly not traditional providers, um, but we are seeing a lot of activity, particularly by a number of firms, in terms of supporting their clients through this process. However, in due course, when particularly around the record keeping and automation, we'll see conveyancing work, for example, automation should make it quicker, should make it cheaper. So there will be a corresponding impact. There's likely to be a lag, I would say, before mm-hmm. we, we see them used for the delivery of, of legal services. And it's much more of an advisory role at this stage, but yet mm. certainly the benefits will accrue.
0: I mean, do we think this is going to be something where it's going to be taking place in larger firms <laughs> dealing with you know, big con- big commercial contracts rather than something initially that you're going to see on the the high streets and maybe conveyancing will be the route in but yeah,
1: i think so and and it's for the reasons you say at the moment the investment is coming from financial services mm. both because the capital is there to invest but also financial services transactions coming back to one of our earlier comments yeah. lend themselves to this kind of conditional sure. program so that's where the investment is that's where a lot of the work is happening so yes we are tending to see that work in mm. your larger law firms um when the trickle down effect comes, will be as you say around convincing. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of work around probate, particularly yep. of recording mm-hmm. assets, and and so that that impact will probably actually when it comes be quite significant in terms mm-hmm. of day to day work. But but certainly at the moment we're seeing it more concentrated around the larger financial services star transactions.
0: Okay, are there things that are really preventing the uptake of blockchain, and are any of those things regulatory? or is it more just trying to find uses for the system and the, the, the technology and, and building up trust in it?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a real mix. So um, from a practical perspective, we mm-hmm. need to um, engage and deal with the question of interoperability. So yeah. how do we get different ledgers to be able to speak to each other? Okay. So how do we get the scale? We've got the question of return on investment. If you speak to most um, industry participants, a lot of people are interested in this. Yeah. Can they, invest the money in developing the system, dealing with legacy systems, so on and so forth. But we then do move into um, a really key barrier to uptake and adoption. And pick any report on on this and it always identifies regulatory uncertainty is one of the key barriers to mainstream um, adoption. A lot of people are interested in smart contracts. Mm -hmm. And I know we're talking a lot about smart contracts, but you really, that is where we're seeing most activity with DLT. Um, But but questions abound. We've touched on some of them. Um, When is a smart contract a contract? How do we interpret the contract? What about implied terms? What is the characterization of a crypto asset Mm -hmm. is it a security can we transfer it to party ABC until we get these fundamental questions settled there is going to be a nervousness about Mm. the types of environments we're willing to deploy the technology now Many lawyers will have a view on all of those questions, but it's having an authoritative review and view. And what we're seeing in this jurisdiction um, is a really important piece of work undertaken by the um, jurisdiction task force of the UK Law Tech Delivery Panel. That's led by Sir Geoffrey Ross, and they held a very detailed consultation on some of these questions Mm -hmm. over the summer, and they are going to release an authoritative note in response. Um, Hopefully, I think the the intention is by the end
0: of the year. So if we look at how regulators in the UK, England and Wales particularly, are approaching blockchain and particularly legal services regulators Mm. are approaching it, what are we seeing so far from from them and are they... And in particular, you in your paper note that there needs to be a coherent and principled and consistent approach to this, to yeah. technology. Why do you think that's important?
1: To the extent possible, a principled approach is important because it allows the development of this space. Yeah. And we've seen that in our common law, um, where if we have clear principles, mm-hmm. then the courts can respond, courts yeah. can respond in a principled way. And we have this coherent and consistent body of knowledge which provides the market with certainty and comfort, but allows regulators to also respond in the way they need to to ensure consumer protection, yeah. institutional protection. And particularly at a time where we're seeing the emergence of a wide range of disruptive technologies, hence mm-hmm. your, your series, it's important to the extent possible that we don't respond to one in a very kind of mandatory yeah. command and control style approach, unless that's appropriate, obviously. Mm-hmm. And another saying, well, we're going to have a more less a fair permissive approach and, and we'll see how that goes. So that principled foundation allows a reliable development of, mm. of regulation around this, this space. And so what we're seeing in this jurisdiction is actually we're seeing that emerge so you know we the law society has been active um in terms of its horizon scanning reports providing information and education as others have the the FCA in financial services mm. has been particularly active. And that's understandable because they are having to deal with an application called an ICO, an initial coin offering, yeah. which we've we've not talked about thus far, but but briefly is a way of raising funds yeah. by issuing tokens on, on the blockchain, very directly impacting on consumer risk and consumer yes. harm. So they've had to act earlier. And but again, we're seeing this. Thoughtful approaches, wait and see approach. Mm. Well, the FCA has issued guidance notes, guidance warnings several years ago saying this is not regulated, it's not an IPO, mm-hmm. it is something different. And we're seeing them move now. They have their crypto asset task force to help characterization yeah. of, of crypto assets. So, again, we are seeing this very thoughtful approach by regulators in this jurisdiction waiting for that tipping point that we often hear discussed as to when do we need to be more proactive either to encourage innovation or protect against consumer harm.
0: That's useful because it leads into my next question which was should regulators really approach this from a technology perspective and say oh this is this is DLT it's blockchain we have to deal with this Mm. or should they think about what it's being used for? To and, the, and then look at it and say, well, how do we deal with this already? Yeah. And then how do we? What would we then need to do to apply it to just using it, doing it via blockchain?
1: Yeah. To the extent possible, my approach would be the latter. Yeah. Um, we've seen um, the FCA is very clear; it, mm-hmm. it adopts a technology-neutral approach. But the reason for that is, what are we concerned with? We're concerned with the harm that yep. can be caused between the parties. Today, we're talking about blockchain, mm-hmm. tomorrow it's gonna to be the next big yes. technology. And we risk two things if we have blockchain regulation. And, and to be clear, we might need some, some mm-hmm. of that in some Not only do we risk, coming back to our very first point, how do we even define this in a way that is not unduly restrictive or inaccurate or inflexible, Um, but what happens when that regulation quickly becomes outdated, which it will? What happens when we get more comfortable with this regulation? Mm -hmm. So the fears that we have today, and this is something... Roger Bransall talks about, who I know has been on a previous podcast. Right now, we're all very concerned about certain aspects of of this technology. But in six months, as our knowledge increases, we're probably Mm -hmm. going to be quite comfortable with that. And if we regulate too early, too prescriptively, then we have very quickly outdated requirements. And so to the extent that we can govern on a principles-based, relationship-based approach, Mm -hmm. we avoid all of those issues. And I think that's how we... Best achieved if it's not entirely possible yeah. that balance between how do we support innovation whilst insu- ensuring consumer protection. What are the harms we're concerned about, and how can we address those whilst not stultifying um, development in the space?
0: So if we if we just take that back a bit and we talk mm. about consumer harm, now we obviously have consumer law, and we have consumer regulation mm-hmm. general. And it applies to all sort of transactions, and then you'll have specific regulations and legals in the legal sector, in the financial sector, etc. Do you think there will need to be a general layer of regulation for blockchain technology, a sort of general piece of regulation that applies to every sector? Yeah. And then if there was such a thing, would there then need to be specific pieces of regulation for, say, legal services, financial services to address those Mm. issues? Or do you think you could more or less cover it through a general?
1: Yeah, there could well be a need at some point for more general regulation, particularly around this classification point that Mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier. I think a best case scenario, certainly in the early days of the technology, is how can we understand the interaction of the technology with existing frameworks, existing principles, the reasons we've talked about. And it might be that to aid that understanding, we need regulation that clarifies what is a crypto asset, Mm -hmm. what, what are the principles around smart contracts and enforceability. Again, I would counsel against an overly prescriptive Mm -hmm. regime at this stage. We see in other jurisdictions, we might come on to this a bit later, there is a a value or an interest in the expressive function of law saying, hey, we're a jurisdiction that's open to business, look at all of our DLT regulation. But... um, you've got to be very wary of, of the risks that that attracts. Right. And I think the UK as a common law system is very well placed, as it always has been, mm-hmm. to respond to new technology, be it a car park ticket machine um, yes. and shoe line parking or the internet or, or all of these iterations because yeah. we have this principled-based approach. So I can see a role for clarifying regulation um, around classification so that the market and... Um, other providers can can have the comfort and certainty we need for investment and br- bringing that now down to the legal services level obviously mm-hmm. we are operating in a kind of principles based environment yeah. and i think it would be incumbent to say well what would the general regulation be to to what extent do we need to specifically respond to that or to what extent can we provide as as sector-specific regulators guidance as to how do we interpret these objectives, these principles, Mm -hmm. in light of this technology? Um, I think we have seen elsewhere amendments to impose an obligation to keep abreast of technological advances, for example. But in this jurisdiction, we do have professional principles that say that you need to perform your work to the requisite standard Mm -hmm. in the interest of your clients. Do we need to change that, or do we need to confirm and provide guidance, saying, "Well, that does mean obviously keeping abreast of um, innovation, technology yep. development." Well, I mean, or
0: whether it's you say that in a way of in- ensuring you deliver your try and deliver services to your clients in the most efficient or cheapest or you know exactly. acceptable, generally accepted way possible, or something like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah exactly, um, because again, otherwise you don't want the unintended consequences of of regulation good or bad sometimes but um we we want to allow the innovation to emerge we want to understand what the real capabilities and risks of the technology are and also we want to be able to move as regulators in an agile way um, to respond to risks as they occur and in the fca we talked about earlier was a good example of that they could issue guidance notes Mm -hmm. and consumer warnings very very quickly and and that serves the market rather than the, the the longer process
0: that would be required otherwise. Do you think that the, the legal services regulators, mm. and of course there are several, yeah. unlike in, say in the financial sector where largely the FCA is the, the main mm-hmm. one. So if we, for example, just take conveyancing, obviously you have solicitors doing conveyancing, you have conveyancers doing it, mm. you have potentially legal executives and maybe some others. Currently, they're all, they're all separately regulated, mm-hmm. they'll have their own codes. If you want to... They have to cooperate essentially mm. if you're going to have some sort of standardized regulation yeah. across the sector, which you would, which ideally you would, considering they're all, all performing the same activity. Do, do you think that the the way the framework is structured currently is is more challenging? Does it make it tougher for legal services regulators to regulate in a way that's beneficial for consumers because you have that split of responsibility mm. as opposed to say where you're looking at the FCA and it's it's one big regulator?
1: Yeah, I've not been involved in in mm. the question from that side but i can see the the challenges that certainly yeah. gives rise to you. and i can see the challenges from a consumer perspective who yeah. says taking mm. convincing i'm just selling my house yes. <laughs> and i want yeah. it done properly and i you know yeah. um, so i i can see that that creates its own challenges although obviously you know, benefits from from that focused mm. um view i think this area in, in technology in general at this time provides an opportunity to, to ask these questions to explore ways of working and cooperation yeah. and to really get regulation right from from the outset to say well what's in the best interest of the consumer what's in the best interest of the legal system mm. and and how can we share our experiences and knowledge to to get the right result from from those objectives
0: you also mentioned that in your paper that some of the regulatory objectives in the Legal Services Act Mm. 2007 might actually conflict with each other when you apply it to blockchain. Could you just sort of expand on that a bit?
1: Yeah, certainly. I think it's a really interesting development from from that perspective because you look at objectives around public interest, consumer interest, protecting the rule of law, a diverse profession, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: access justice. Using technology in a way that makes legal services cheaper, more efficient, yeah. so on and so forth, it's obviously in our consumer interest, mm-hmm. obviously in the public interest to say, well, let's bring the legal services profession and provision of legal services into the modern era. You know, you mm-hmm. can tweet people on the other side of the world. You can do all your banking on your phone. But I think there will be a view by some consumers that the legal profession is lagging a little behind. Sure. and. Having a regulatory regime or support that says, well, we recognize this technology and we're going to enhance, I think really serves some of those regulatory Mm -hmm. objectives well. On the flip side, there is significant consumer harm around a narrative that's developing around DLT of, oh, it's completely immutable. Oh, it's completely tamper-proof. This is a contract where consumers could be forgiven for thinking they're either using the services of a lawyer when they're Mm -hmm. not a a regulated partner, or they could be forgiven for thinking they've entered into a legally binding contract when they haven't. So there's a real education piece uh, around there as well. So you can see how within the objectives, there's a a potential tension between achieving innovation, diversity, access to justice, and maintaining trust in in the system System. and, and ensuring consumer protection.
0: So if you were sitting at a regulator mm-hmm. and you had the the blockchain brief there, let's say. Yeah. What would be the things you would do? What would you what would be your sort of major um, actions you would take or things you would keep an eye on?
1: Yeah. In terms of um, approach or applications. Uh, we'll let's, let's do approach, approach first yeah. and then, and then
0: yeah. think about applications.
1: Um there is a significant question and opportunity around the legitimacy of response this is not just legal services but across the board and we've seen this elsewhere we need to properly understand the detailed application of the technology to understand how it impacts our regulatory objectives consumer risk and so If I was sitting in that room, one of the first actions would be to understand how do we get the right community of stakeholders together Mm -hmm. and in what way to ensure the legitimacy of this response, both in terms of ensuring we have a an accurate technical understanding, but also to ensure that we're bringing our stakeholders with us through every stage of the regulatory process. And that's not saying having our response dictated, but just making sure Mm. that we have the right people in the room. And that has an oblique function of actually using the regulators' convening power, of creating this community of interested multidisciplinary parties to think about these questions and, and to innovate. So I would be looking at supporting collaboration research projects what are the existing activities in this space do we want to get involved with incubators we've seen Mm -hmm. other regulators do that for example and really have that as a foundation which then builds the community of people which allow us to do what would be one of my other early jobs which is education and training you how do we educate our community and that goes from the full panoply of Law students, trainees, newly mm-hmm. qualified partners at new law firms, but also what about the computer scientists and engineers yes. gen- and generating and developing these products which are going to be working within the legal sphere? Mm. And you can't build a robust legitimate education program without engaging the right people mm-hmm. to to provide the the information. That then also allows the regulator to understand where the real risks are to then start to issue in a timely and authoritative way the guidance notes and 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 best practice notes that, that we were talking about right. earlier.
0: Do you think there's a need for regulators to really build up a, a group of people inside CDSRA? Who are who are just technical special, technological specialists, who will be the, the blockchain specialist team. Who, who if there's a block if there's an issue and mm. blockchains involved, they can they can go in they can look at it and take it apart and understand yeah. the codes and all of these kind of things. Is that is that something you think reg, legal regulators will need, or do you think it's more of a we understand what the application does and we the actual technology underlying it, they won't need to worry so much about.
1: Whether you put it as strong as the need, I'm not sure, but I think there, there does need to be a, a really robust understanding right. of, of the underlying technology. One example being, well, what if you're looking at the question of control okay. in a transaction? Well, if you don't know the difference between a multi-sig relationship where there are three parties or a yeah. binary, then, then you don't you can't fully appreciate how that might manifest. Okay. If you're looking at allocation of rights and responsibilities, for example, and wallet providers, so on and so forth, these are all concepts that, that you need to really have, have a handle on. Mm. You, you might not necessarily be able to go have to go build it, but certainly having a group of people you can... Draw upon mm-hmm. to provide that insight helps us get the regulatory response right, okay. right first time. It creates that confidence, and then as a jurisdiction, it, it demonstrates our our capability in this space yeah. as well.
0: And, and I suppose that when they are, when you are dealing with technological tech developers mm. as a as a regulator, you sound a bit more like you know what you're talking about, and and you're able to communicate with them in a language mm. that they'll understand. Because I, you know, I think one of the things sometimes you see is you know, technology people talk and they speak about in their in their way of speaking, and lawyers, of course, obviously have their way of speaking, and regulators perhaps a slightly different mm-hmm. way of speaking. Again, and you can get this um, talking past, perhaps rather than talking to or understanding really.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I've often said that yeah, you know, as as the first instance, you what we're looking at because you have the perennial should lawyers code. So we're talking about a communication piece traditionally lawyers have had to take their client's business strategy and convert it into legalese. Mm-hmm. They're now having to take legalese and help convert it into computer code or at least yes. communicate to the people who are going to do that similarly with with regulators. And if you get a computer scientist and a lawyer in the room talking about execute, let alone obligation, you're going to have very different views and, very, like you say, very different understandings yeah. of what you're talking about. And I was... Um, involved in in something recently where we had about 10 15 people in the room lawyers computer scientists and we had you know, 50 things we were going to talk about and i don't think we got past the first one pretty right. much because because of that very point we we're all wanting to get to the same place but it was a really useful exercise to truly appreciate the the shortcuts and shorthands that we have in our respective yes. professions and you that's where that education piece can come in, because if we're not saying you have to become a computer scientist you're a lawyer or a lawyer if you're a computer scientist, you certainly need to understand mm-hmm. these are concepts I need to be factoring in, these are concepts I need to reach out to another expert to, to assist with. And, and like you say, if, if you're a regulator in, in that space, bringing your community along with you as to your regulatory objectives mm-hmm. and purpose is, is going to be much easier if, if you're speaking the same language.
0: So just to bring it back a little bit to blockchain specifically and how regulators might Mm -hmm. want to respond to it. So if you take a look at, we talked a lot a bit about conveyancing today um, and obviously the land registry have been doing their work with with digital registers. If you're a legal services regulator who's regulating conveyancing, what are the sort of things you might want to do as far as blockchain is concerned in the sort of short, medium, longer term in order to ensure that your conveyancers can can use blockchain or will be able to and that consumers are protected.
1: Great example, very topical example. I think in the first instance this transaction has received a lot of publicity. It could mm-hmm. generate a lot of concern. Yeah. So I think it's Reaching out to your stakeholders to be clear, either with a short bulletin, this is what it means, mm-hmm. this is what it doesn't mean. This is our intended program of work. really right. to help bring the community together, demonstrate there's ongoing work so that stakeholders can, can contact regulator if yeah. needs be, but also to allay some fears. Yeah, mm-hmm. There's a, a narrative around this, is it the end of lawyers and so forth. Yes. So that would be my first short-term bulletin this is where we're at this is the state of play there will be a program of work yeah midterm we're looking at that education piece but in a very clear and directed way maybe consulting with members where are your issues where Mm -hmm. do you envisage there's a gap in your knowledge what type of tech systems do you have are you planning on on investing in this and then we can start to develop education and best practice guidance um, and really look at how we deliver that so use of online training targeted Mm -hmm. training depending on background seniority that type of thing I think one thing that, convene, that um, regulators can really help with is using their convening power to distill some of the critical on-the-ground day-to-day issues that right. can arise. So what about bringing together um, a group, a multidisciplinary group, providing a case study for mm-hmm. early consideration, and really from onboarding the client to engaging with legacy systems in the office to yeah. interacting with land registry. What if there's a problem? What if there's a power cut? You know, all of right. these, in, Getting using that case study to really try and drive granular thinking about where are the issues and therefore where can the regulator provide support and, mm-hmm. and guidance? And then in the longer term, it is keeping that watchful eye on do we need to take more direct action? Is there a greater education piece? Can we support research projects, sandboxes, incubators, those yes. those kinds of activities, but I think it's that, that um, continuum of comforting and initial guidance to, to your community, developing case studies and knowledge, and then um, responding to, to new issues as they arise in the longer term.
0: Okay, and as far as, say, engaging with other regulators mm. or regulatory bodies, it um, for example, say, the, something like the Information Commissioner or, you know, things like that we're going to have, like the Centre for Data Ethics and the yeah. Innovation, these kind of overall arching bodies. Presumably that will be a very important relationship for sectoral regulators to, to, to maintain. and
1: Very important for a couple of reasons, I would say, and, and maybe particularly for, for legal services. Um one is obviously ensuring our voice is heard and that we're we're, um, we're contributing and inputting into to that activity. Two to ensure that we try to the extent possible avoid this patchwork of of yes. activity. But three, I think there is a really important point around the narrative of legal services and the legal profession as an enabler of innovation, right. not a blocker <laughs> to innovation. Yes. Which sometimes the narrative around this technology can unfortunately mm-hmm. fall foul of. So I think it's really important that we're seeing to be supporting and encouraging innovation Mm -hmm. um, and that legal services are an important part of realizing the potential of technology and it's not just there is a barrier to to tech.
0: Is there anything else that you think could be done in in this jurisdiction particularly to to improve it and in order to make it more welcoming or more to to sort of better foster innovation? And, you know, that sort of
1: thing. I think it's an interesting question because this jurisdiction is exceptionally well placed to support yes. innovation. We have, as we've talked about, a principled based common law system, yeah. which has proven itself time and time again, mm-hmm. well placed to adapt. We have an independent and technology, technologically aware judiciary. Mm-hmm. We have some of the best legal services and computer scientists minds yeah. in in the world we've got the university sector we've got the infrastructure i think what we can do and certainly is some of the work that the uk law tech delivery panel is doing is is bringing together and communicating that activity we see other um, jurisdictions singapore being a common example are doing a very good job of saying this is our activity in mm. this space this is how we're supporting um this jurisdiction is doing all of that as well. Yes. And um, and perhaps presenting that that work in, in a joined-up way will, will help really reinforce the, the reality of the situation, mm. which is the jurisdiction remains one of the best in the world for commercial activity and innovation.
0: Thank you very much for your time today, Anna. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. And for new listeners, please do listen to the first three episodes of Talking Tech. We expect a podcast to return later this year. And thanks very much for listening.